0: This archived broadcast of Janet Mefford Today is brought to you by Affirm Film's Show Me the Father. The creators of War Room and Courageous, the Kendrick Brothers, explore fatherhood through five true stories. Show Me the Father, rated PG, parental guidance suggested in theaters September 10th. This is Janet Mefford Today. Our confidence is in Christ alone.
1: Are we going to stand with God? Come what may. If the word of God says it, I believe it. And that's the way it is. Now, here is Janet Mefford.
0: Welcome, everybody. When you look across America today, it's easy to conclude that we've never been more politically and socially divided, at least in the last several decades, than we are right now. And many have remarked about their fears of a potential civil war breaking out again. But what about the other issue so central to the civil war of the 1800s, which is the issue of secession? Is secession something that could be on the table in the near future? It's been talked about a lot, especially in progressive circles. But is it something that could actually happen or should should actually happen. We're going to discuss this today with Frank Buckley. He's a foundation professor at George Mason University's Scalia School of Law. His latest book is called "American Secession: The Looming Threat of a National Breakup." Frank, great to have you with us. How are you?
1: I'm well, Janet. Thanks very much for having me.
0: Well, it's great to talk to you. You say we are less united as a nation today than at any time since the Civil War. Why do you say that? What do you think are the components of this breakdown?
1: Well, first of all, you know, sadly, we were. United in 1860, I mean, uh, everybody was prepared to compromise on slavery, and when the war started, it wasn't about slavery. It turned out that way. But as for today, um, see, we're in the middle of a cultural war which has driven the left absolutely nuts. I mean, all they think about is in terms of their power with respect to the culture. Yep. And they thought they had won the culture wars. And then, then Donald Trump happened. They realized, well, you know, maybe we didn't. <laughs> and that's just driving them nuts. And I, I think that's the explanation for the madness on the left. I mean, it's, it's it's like a psychic wound. You know, It's for them, you know, it's like a religious war. Yeah. And if that's where we are today, imagine Trump getting reelected and getting a couple of more seats in the Supreme Court. Yeah and at that point it might happen and you know the difference with 1860 is this time it'll be politically correct yeah, oh.
0: yeah. Well, yeah, because you point out that most of the secession movements right now are coming from the progressive side. I mean, we saw that, I think, with California not too long ago, but they were the same people who, when Texas uh-huh. Texas was talking about it, you know, kind of jokingly, not really terribly seriously, most people. But when Texas talked about that in the Obama years, they all laughed and made fun and said, this is the stupidest thing we've ever heard of. But then they turn around and now they talk about it. How, how strong is that secession movement among progressive? right now.
1: Well, it's it's not really there in part because of the the horrible example of, of the Civil War. Uh, I think it'll take them realizing that they lost the culture war and it's going to be permanent and, and at that point they'll look at their option and the option is not the Civil War, right? I mean right. we're not going to redo that again. Uh, the, you know, the option is something peaceful and, and you know, one of the reasons that makes the session more attractive—and bear in mind, I'm not arguing for it—but one of the things that makes it more attractive is the success of the civil rights revolution. Right? I mean, yeah. we're not going to go back. Right. Okay. Uh, we're not going to undo that. You know, it's not going to be about slavery. It's going to be about transgender bathrooms. Yep. You know. Yep. And, <laughs> yes. Uh, you know, and, and that kind of craziness, and and you know, you know, I have, you know, my view is that. Conservatives, people on the right, are kind of more tolerant than people on way more tolerant than people on the left. I yes. mean, you know, there, there were things we didn't like about Obama's policies, but uh, we didn't hate Obama, and and uh, you know, we didn't go nuts. Uh, but it's totally different from the left right now, and and it's really unhealthy and divisive. So my suggestion is, you know, if you start thinking about secession, maybe you want to start thinking about some about stepping back and saying. Well, you know, how about, you know, the old kind of federalism we used to have where people could go on their own way on a lot of issues. Right. And, you know, instead of rule from Washington. Well,
0: yeah, that, that's really interesting. And you talk about this idea of home rule and you get into some of the alternatives to straight out secession as some people have thought about it. But what about the size of the United States? That's something that you raise in the book that we are over large. And it is the case that smaller countries tend to be able to govern themselves better. Of course, there's a flip side to that. If we're not the United States anymore, then how do we remain the superpower that can stand up to some of our foreign enemies? That's another issue. But what about the, the just the... the the size of the United States no longer being a, a feasible size to be a united nation in light of some of our cultural differences.
1: Well, you know, there are secession movements all over the world, but it's the big countries in particular that are most in, in, in under the threat of, of a breakup, um, you know, and, and, and the reason for that is we're better governed in, in a smaller country. When you think about some of our problems, um, I mean, some people say we're a regulatory state and we're run by a bunch of bureaucrats in Washington. Yes. Well, what they're talking about is the code of federal regulation, you know, drafted by the federal government. Mm-hmm. And then you've got some people who say, well, plus we're kind of corrupt, you know, as <laughs> compared to some other countries. And, you know, if we are, and I think we are, the corruption is rooted on K Street in Washington. It's it's not a a state problem, it's a federal problem. You know, and and the smaller the country, the closer the, the leaders are to the regular people. You know, it's when they're, it's when we as a people are far removed from our rulers that they get away with with uh, stuff we don't like. That's right. So you don't have that accountability. So you know, I, I sort of looked at it, did some number number crunching, and I concluded that, you know, people are happier when when the government they're living in a smaller country. And you're you're right about the military, but that's a two way street. I mean, um, you know, Washington. In his farewell address, said, you know, we're so lucky we're here in, in North America. We're not in Europe, where you know they, they they fight each other all the time. We're protected by the oceans, mm-hmm. so we're not going to be invaded, right? So if California, you know, here's the thing with California. I mean, if if it didn't have to pay its share of the military budget, it could afford a national health scheme for all of California. You know, if you offer that deal to California uh, progressives, they might say, hey, that sounds pretty good. Right. Uh, so I don't think we're really that threatened. You know, I mean, you kind of lose a sense of glory of being the biggest country around. But glory comes at a cost. True. You know, I mean, it's a cost in terms of lives lost. And we spend more in our military than the next 21 countries put together. So, you know, if we split in half, you know, we'd still be darn powerful.
0: Well, and we've got this new emerging problem that seems to be something that will remain, at least for the time being. And that is you had one president uh, under President Obama most recently, who is doing all kinds of radical things in the leftist direction. And then you have Trump come along and he's undoing gleefully at times everything that Obama was doing. But what this really reflects, though, is you've got such a divided country, they want, they want in many respects to do the opposite thing. If our guy gets in, undo everything the last guy did. And that's kind of a new phenomenon.
1: It really is. You know, it began really with Obama. I mean, Obamacare was passed without a single Republican vote. right? And that's not how we used to do business. I mean, look, um, the Civil Rights Bill of 1964 was passed with you know mostly cuz the republicans got on board not the democrats. Right. You know and that was you know that was how things used to be done and I, I you know I got to tell you I miss that. Me too. You know it 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 uh, I kind of like government where people get together and uh, and, 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 and yep. shoot the breeze. Yes. Yeah and, and the you know the animosity now boy it's just ripe for a breakup.
0: Yeah, and, and that's, I mean, do you see that as an inevitability? I mean, nobody can know for sure, but are you that worried or concerned about a national breakup that you think it's it's going to happen at some point?
1: Oh, you know, nobody can predict the future, except I'd say one thing. It's a good time to invest in stock in U-Haul. Because, <laughs> <laughs> you know, if, if, if it came to it, I mean, right now you got a lot of people from places like California moving to Texas. Yes. Uh, not that all. Every Texan is happy about that, but, uh, but it's happening right now. And if states were permitted to go their own way, whether under something like home rule or something more radical, you know, that movement of people would just accelerate. We'd sort ourselves out. And and that's fine I mean, you know I'm here in Virginia And we've got a massive Gun rally Yep In, in Richmond And uh, it's sort of Northern Virginia Versus the rest of the state.
0: Well, hang on a moment We're going to take A short break And Professor Frank Buckley Will be back talking about His book American Secession You're listening to Janet Mefford today
2: This is Raising Godly the Girls Minute with Patti Garibay of American Heritage Girls.
1: Body positivity confuses our culture. In the same breath, our world tells girls to love themselves as they are, while celebrating women who shed the pounds and look better than ever. Our bodies, made in God's image, should always be loved and treated with the same respect we give to any of His creations. But it doesn't end there. We also need to keep our souls healthy, too. We read in 1 Timothy. For physical training is of some value, but godliness has value for all things, holding promise for both the present life and the life to come. God gave us physical bodies capable of great work. But more importantly, he blesses us with souls capable of even greater things, work for the good of his kingdom.
2: We are all called to raise up the next
0: generation of Christian leaders. Learn more about empowering girls at RaisingGodlyGirls.com. Hi, this is Kirk Cameron and I am honored to be partnering with the Ministry of Preborn to help moms choose life. Actor Kirk Cameron supports Preborn. My 4 oldest children were adopted, that is because of
2: caring and compassionate people who help those young mothers choose life. My wife is an adopted child, and her birth mother chose life for her. If it weren't for those caring individuals that help those young moms value the sacredness of life, I wouldn't have my wife, I wouldn't have my four adopted children, and the two natural-born children that we have wouldn't exist either. My whole family is here because of people that are involved with ministries like
0: Help moms choose life with Preborn. Your gift of $28 provides an abortion-minded mother a potentially life-saving ultrasound. $140 could save 5 babies. You can give now at 855-601-BABY. That's 855-601-2229 or visit preborn.com.
1: You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet
0: Welcome back. Great to have you with us and great to have with us Professor Frank Buckley, Foundation Professor at George Mason University Scalia School of Law and author of American Secession, The Looming Threat of a National Breakup. You know, you were saying kind of tongue in cheek, Frank, that, you know, it might not be a bad time to invest in U-Haul as we're looking at, you know, the divide in this country. And at some point, there may be a national breakup. But you know, it occurs to me that whenever we had a move, culturally speaking, and well, politically speaking, with Trump being elected, for example, you always get a lineup of progressives saying they're going to leave the country but they never do. So I mean this this raises yes, this raises the question if there were secession could you imagine the progressives for example ever letting the conservatives get away with having a state of their own? That's that's what a lot of conservatives talk about. Would they even let us have a state like Texas if Texas ever seceded or would they put up a big fight to get it?
1: Well, you you, you raise an interesting point, and here it is. It's that conservatives tend not to be imperialists, and liberals tend to be imperialists. In other words, uh, you know, I don't don't care what the gun laws are in Massachusetts. I mean, I'm interested in what they are in Virginia, but I don't care about, you know, elsewhere. But, you know, people on the left are more concerned to—I mean, they think they've got it right, and they can force their ideas on the rest of us. Yes. But if they figure— See, that's that's how they might think if they think they won the culture war. But if they think they permanently lost it with Trump and what comes after, they might say, well, we're not going to get that. I mean, let's let's protect what we what we have here and let's not have a a, a conservative administration in Washington tell us what to do. Right. So, you know, they might have to give up their imperialism just because they're they're not going to win that one.
0: I would love that. What would it take, though, for them to concede the cultural war? What sorts of, you know, wins would the conservatives have to actually achieve in order for the left to concede?
1: Well, like I say, a second Trump term and a couple of solid uh, new conservatives appointed to the Supreme Court. And, uh, you know, uh, and a reversal of a lot of the decisions, the decisions that uh, we've assumed are cast in stone. and, And you know, I'm not. I'm t- what I'm talking about are things like Roe v. Wade. You know, where states might go their own way. True. So, True. You know, that that that's the sort of thing which would drive the left nuts right now you know the way i see it is here i am in virginia and i get the washington post on my doorstep every morning and every morning there's a fresh plea for secession every morning it's i'm saying we can't tolerate any of this stuff <laughs> you know this is horrible horrible terrible stuff yep you know and you know and and the reality is that you know conservative states are not benighted i mean we fully accepted you know much of the good things liberals gave us i mean i see myself as a jfk liberal okay i mean I, you know mm-hmm. uh you know the idea that we're all you know horrible, horrible people, that's not us at all, right? Yeah, yeah. And it's 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 them projecting, I think, their hatred upon us.
0: Yeah, it's a difficult situation because you don't have that classical liberalism that is, you know, the, the free speech movement for example at Berkeley, now that's the place where they toss yeah. people out who have ideas that they don't like. So a lot has changed in the last 40 years.
1: Yeah, yeah, really, you know, and so supposing that uh, this is what I talk about in, in my book, American Succession, supposing that the left figures has lost the war and, and a secession referendum is passed and and it's ratified by the state legislature at that point, you know you know it would end up in the Supreme Court inevitably. and at that point, the Supreme Court's going to have to ask itself, do we ignore democracy? Hmm. We got a democratic vote here. Do we totally ignore it? I don't think they would. You know I think right. they'd say, well, we have to take it into account. And what it would lead to is a lot of discussions. You know, there's no abstract right of secession because you've got to figure out, for example, what portion of the national debt would be passed on to the, to the state oh that wants out. Yeah. You know, so, yeah, it, so at that point, uh, we'll start talking. And maybe what we'd end up with is you know, something like home rule, which is greater federalism.
0: Yeah. Well, now, when you talk about the Supreme Court, wouldn't it then have to go back to, uh, you know, this uh, whole notion of denying the right to secede? In other words, it sounds like what you're saying is you have a constitutional amendment that's ratified. And then as a constitutional amendment, that would be what would force the Supreme Court to have to come back and say, well, this is the will of the people. This was done constitutionally. This can go forward. Is that what you're basically envisioning?
1: Yeah, that's that's what other countries have gone through when there's been a split. I I mean, you know, the Supreme Court has had to choose between absolutely no right of secession whatsoever, you know, nothing there. And, hey, there's democracy at work here, and you guys got to get together and talk to each other. And that would lead to, you know, some kind of constitutional convention under our Constitution where we'd have to divide up things and agree on probably a lot more power going back to the states i mean that's you know that's the kind of way in which this sensibly would be concluded and that would you know i think that would be a good thing but uh you know i i'm not going to make a prediction but i'm saying this might be on the horizon. Take well, a look right.
0: at it. Yeah, right. Well, you also talk about Article 5 and a constitutional convention uh, along those lines. How could you coordinate a plan like this constitutionally to get an amendment passed? I know it's a long shot, but if we're just dealing in the realm of possibilities, w- what would that look like? You, you have a convention, a uh, constitutional convention, and then, you know, the states, fair number of states come together and say, yeah, this is what we want to do, and, and that would kind of set the process in motion?
1: Yeah, I mean, it would have to start with one state saying, we want out. Okay. In other words, the problem of the Constitutional Convention right now is the hurdle is really high. It's like 38 states have to agree. Yeah. But, you know, if the impetus is one state saying we want out, at that point, that's the sort of thing that brings people to the table to talk to each other. Yes. They, they might say, well, you know, rather than just wanting out, you know, let's see, you know, how we can compromise this thing. And and that would get a, an Article Five Constitutional Convention going.
0: Yeah. Now, would there be any sort of, I mean, obviously we're dealing in the realm of the hypothetical, but my obvious, you know, imagination here is how would you split the country, though? It would depend on the the states that say they want out. If it were more blue states that wanted out than red, then it might go a different way than if the red states initiated the process. But again, you have a lot of people who love all the states and wouldn't want to lose all this. You know, I think it would be hard for a lot of conservatives. There is. is
1: I mean. You're down in Texas, and there was this gentleman called Sam Houston in 1861 said, no, no, you know, I'm a unionist, you know, and and the list of unionists in the South might surprise you. Robert E. Lee was a unionist. Stonewall Jackson was a unionist. Virginia was totally divided. I mean, my state took three votes on secession, and the first two failed, and only after Lincoln called up the troops did the third one secede. And then you had the border states. Okay, of of Kentucky and Tennessee. And then you look at the 2016 election, the red-blue divide. And it's not just a red-blue divide. The red is real red, and the blue is real blue. Yes. Right? I mean, a lot of places where Trump got 70 or lost 70% of the vote. Yes. So, the, you know, the divisions are, are, are there. And, uh, you know... You know, I don't know. Maybe I'll have to move to Texas. You I'm should. I recommend, yeah, I recommend. Yeah, it.
0: <laughs> I recommend it. I recommend it. I'm from Chicago, and I, I'll tell you, having left the People's Republic of Illinois, it's a wonderful place to live. I have to recommend it highly. <laughs> but you know, it's it, it, this solution of home rule also intrigues me. Intrigues me because you've talked about the fact that the British had presented this idea back in 1778 to the Continental Congress. But what about these alternatives to outright secession? Are there any other options for healing the divide that might actually be workable?
1: Well, it's, you know, the divide would have to involve some devolution of responsibility back to the state. I mean, if a state wants out, if it's that unhappy, you're going to have to offer it something other than com- total, complete rule by Washington. So that's how you get started talking about home rule. And, you know, and, and that you know, the classic example was Great Britain and Ireland mm-hmm. in the 19th century, you know, there, there was a lot of Irish discontent, and and kind of the moderate liberal view in England was, well, let's give them home rule, and you know it took forty years, and, and finally uh, uh, Irish independence. But you know the idea of a country, Great Britain, being too big, and solving the problem of bigness by giving more responsibility to local areas, that's kind of you know that that makes a whole lot of sense.
0: Right. Yeah. But it would seem that there would be a lot of angst along the way because you have, for example, not just the Democrats, obviously, but also the Republicans. A lot of them are on board with big government and putting all these big government policies into place. And it wouldn't work as well if you started having people peeling off because we're already drowning in debt. I mean, would you not end up having some skirmish at some point, not just in the in the ideological sense, but even coming to you know, arms in the streets. You never know what could happen. People get very passionate about these things, and I, I, I can't see at this moment in the current political context that there would be a lot of uh, goodwill going around well, to let, let people me, leave.
1: <laughs> let me give you some background. So, listen. You know, I was I moved here from Canada, okay, and I went through a secession crisis in Quebec, where it nearly passed. And what was at issue there was a, a language law, which which Diminished English rights. It was called Bill One Hundred One, mm. and English Montrealers called it Bill Four Hundred One. Why? Because Four Hundred One is the highway between Montreal and Toronto. So the result of all this was about three hundred thousand Anglos moved from Montreal to Toronto. Right? Where mm. you know, they, you know, I hate Toronto. Okay, but the point <laughs> is, uh, that's how you solve things in modern in the modern age,
0: yeah.
1: not by war. You know?
0: Yeah. Yeah, but yeah. By, by
1: moving. That's, by moving, yeah, yeah. That's the alternative.
0: That's the alternative. And, and is there any chance that you see that there could be healing, that there could be an America that does come together more than it does in this moment?
1: Yeah, you know, I mean, that's my argument. My argument to the left in all this is you guys are, are, are obviously off your meds. You know, you guys <laughs> have gone crazy. And you're projecting your anger and your hatred on people who are you know, m- pretty moderate folks, the conservatives. I mean, almost by definition, a conservative will be moderate that way. And 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 maybe what you should do is is chill a little bit, you know, take a Valium and, you know, don't project the anger. And, and, and that's the easiest way around this.
0: That would be great. Well, Professor Frank Buckley, American Secession is the name of the book. And so great to talk to you, Frank. Thanks a lot for being with us. Thank you. All right. God bless. We'll be back. This archived broadcast of Janet Mefford Today is brought to you by Affirm Film's Show Me the Father. The creators of War Room and Courageous, the Kendrick Brothers, explore fatherhood through five true stories. Show Me the Father, rated PG, parental guidance suggested in theaters September 10th.
1: This is Janet Mefford Today, and now, here's your host, Janet Mefford.
0: We are back on Janet Meffer today. Not too long ago, I saw an interview with actress Goldie Hawn talking about why she has lived with actor Kurt Russell for 32 years, but has never married him. And according to Hawn, she hasn't made the leap to the altar because she believes compatibility and communication is far more important than a piece of paper. We've heard that line before. Well, once upon a time, this attitude would have been scandalous and socially unacceptable. But as we know, today, cohabitation is considered downright normal. In fact, it is mind-blowing to look at some of the recent statistics on the family and see the effects that cohabitation has had on couples and children and society at large. So we're going to talk about this subject today with licensed clinical psychologist Dr. Frank Moncher. He wrote a great article on this topic that was recently published over at the Culture of Life Foundation website. It is called Living Together Versus Marriage, A Closer Look at the Data. It's wonderful to have you here. Dr. Moncher. how are you?
2: fine, Janet. Thank you for having me. Thank you.
0: So what do you make of this line that marriage is just a piece of paper? That seems to be the standard line we hear from cohabiting couples.
2: Yeah, I think it, it rejects the idea that there's something that is deeper than the piece of paper that happens with marriage. And and I think this is what we need to get the word out about is that, well, there's obviously a contract of sorts that happens when people get married, Um, there's a deeper meaning to the lifelong commitment that is presumed to go along with that piece of paper. And that lifelong commitment, that ability to weather storms, to know that that person's going to be there with you through thick and thin, um, that has a lot of benefits emotionally.
0: That's right. What have you seen as far as statistics and research on the benefits of marriage and what difference it makes for the man and the woman who end up marrying rather than living together?
2: Well, for both men and women, there seems to be An improved uh, sense of um, emotional well-being and so there's less depression, less anxiety and I think that if you kind of take a common sense approach to it um, you can see how that would be that um, if you are in a relationship that is solid you don't have to be concerned about the person ever kind of just deciding no longer to be with you and walking out spontaneously or or impulsively. Um, There's something about the marital commitment and you know how there's lengths of times you have to be separated before divorce. That gives people time to reflect and to to work through the issues.
0: Right, exactly. And well, what about children? what What sorts of effects have you found the children to have living in homes where the couple is married versus the couple is merely cohabiting?
2: Right. That that research is very clear that there's um, a lot of benefits that go to what I guess you would call the traditional marital situation, one man, one woman, who are together, to life-raising children together. There's benefits for the children, both in terms of the stability of that union, um, but also having uh, an adult uh, role model of the opposite sex and of the same sex together, kind of working out, working through their difficulties, showing them different ways of being in relationship, showing them um, different ways of having strengths in relationship. And so there's there's a lot to be said for for having that uh, traditional marriage.
0: For sure. Now, you say there is this research now out looking at whether or not living together versus marriage, if there's any really substantive difference. Uh, tell us a little bit about this study that's come out.
2: Yeah, it's fairly recent. And um, what caught my eye is this uh, headline that showed up in the popular press that uh, there was allegedly no difference between marriage versus living together. And what I'd known from the research in the past is that there had always been a huge difference. In fact, living together was one of the risk factors for divorce. Um, People who lived together prior to becoming married um, were at a great increase for divorce within the first six or seven years. Mm -hmm. Now, interestingly, if um, if the couple living together persists past that six or seven year mark, apparently something kicks in where there is sort of the, uh, the stability and the commitment and the trust that gets kind of rebuilt. But in the first several years, what happens for people who are living together, who then get married, is there, there's not a sense of permanence that, that would come with marriage. And so the research has been clear for a long time that there's a lot of benefits to, to getting married. In fact, it came to be known as the marriage effect, that people who got married had more emotional well-being, less depression, less anxiety, and so when the study came out and began to say. You know, these are equivalent. I I did think it was worth a closer look.
0: Absolutely. So, one of the things that you've mentioned is they were really wanting to compare the two because the stigma is gone. That they were apparently wondering about marriage being just as good as living together and vice versa, simply because there's not that social pressure anymore to look upon it as living in sin. But what did you make of the findings? What did you make of their conclusions?
2: Right. When when I took a look at their data, and it's it's reflected pretty well in the article here, what they found was that there was this small increase in well-being that was coming with living together. Um, And they studied, of course, uh, married couples as well. And a few things jump jump out. One is that the benefits on an emotional level to being married were roughly about twice that of living together. Wow! So even... You know, apples to apples, we're still looking at marriage being a, a more impactful situation. But the other um, aspect of their data collection that was interesting is they had a hard time uh, tracking couples living together because, as you might imagine, sometimes the partner would change over the course of the study. Right. You know, they would live with one person and then the next kind of time of data collection, they'd be living with someone else. And so, um, when you when I started to see them referencing things like that, it I really wanted to get the word out that um, you can't just trust the headline, that there's some sense of equivalence here, that there's really is still substantive differences between living together and having a formal marriage.
0: When you had said about the small increase in well-being for living together, are you talking about the small increase in well-being compared to marriage, or that living together gives you better well-being than it has in previous years? What exactly does that mean?
2: Right. That's looking at, not compared to marriage, but a small increase in well-being over being single. Oh, okay. And and that's where, again, I think uh, if, you, if we put our common sense hats on, we're going to look at this and say, well, sure, when you're in a new relationship and it's exciting and then a decision is made to make it a little bit more formal by living together, it would be kind of surprising if people didn't have a little bump in their level of emotional well-being or... You know, a little bit of a, an abatement in their depression or anxiety right after all something some step forward has been taken um, and I think what's probably crucial is that if, if we had better data to look at you would probably see that that would wane over time um, particularly in the case of women who oftentimes see that move towards living together as a stepping stone to marriage sure whereas men are more likely to see that as a testing period to see if this is really the person I want to be with and see some different effects there.
0: Oh, you can imagine that. And as you say, when you use some common sense, it would seem, of course, your well-being would rise a little bit if you were living together over just dating. But wouldn't that be the reason? The reason for that would be because you are getting more commitment. In other words, that's almost an argument for marriage. See, when you're more committed, that's a better thing for everybody.
2: Right, right. And I think that's, um, that's something that doesn't get spelled out, particularly in sort of the headlines of the news.
0: Why, why do you think that there is such an increase in cohabitation? One of the statistics here was that two-thirds of couples actually cohabit before they get married. Why are those numbers what they are, do you think?
2: I, I think that's a long-standing um, reflection of the cultural shifts over the past several decades, that as people have become more and more suspicious of... Uh, tradition and particular religious tradition, um, there's been this idea that somehow we can kind of have it both ways, that we don't really need to follow all the rules um, and that we can still get the benefits um, in something like uh, the use of our human sexuality without going through all the formal commitments and, and traditions that are there. And so I think that's been being chipped away at slowly but surely. And then, of course, there's a lot of other social movements afoot where people are really calling into question what it means to be a human person, what it means to be male, what it means to be female, and all these sorts of things, I think, are part of the same uh, change in our society that are causing particularly younger people to look at marriage and say... You know, is this really something that's necessary? And the other main thing would be the divorce um, increases over the past several decades as well. I I'll
0: tell you what, let's case. talk after we go to this break. Dr. Frank Montcher with us talking about living together versus marriage, a closer look at the data. We'll be back on Janet Mefford today after this.
1: From Affirm Films comes the Kendrick Brothers' Show Me the Father. The creators of War Room and Courageous take moviegoers on a cinematic journey that invites you to think differently about your earthly father and how you relate to God through five true stories. I'm stunned. He's real. He's really out there. And this is really him. This is really him. Show Me the Father. Rated PG. Parental guidance suggested. In theaters September 10th. More information is available at showmethefathermovie.com.
0: Ask yourself, what do you pay for health care? Are you single? Do you pay more than $199 a month? Are you a couple? Do you pay more than $299 a month? Do you have a family? Do you pay more than $399 a month? Yes, you can serve the entire family with health care for only $399 a month with Liberty HealthShare. Liberty HealthShare is a non-profit ministry, not insurance, so your money goes toward helping other members with their eligible medical expenses. And in your time of need, other members are there for you, too. You can feel good knowing you're part of a community of like-minded individuals. Sign up at any time of the year. Pick your own doctor and hospital. Find out more at libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. That's libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. Or call now 855-565-2561. That's 855-565-2561 or libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. If you're looking for adventure, serving as a
2: volunteer on the Mercy Ship is an adventure like no other. And you'll be serving on the largest non-governmental hospital ship in the world, providing free care to some of the world's poorest people. Whether it's performing a surgery, cleaning the deck, or transporting a patient to a recovery center, every day you'll be making a difference in the lives of struggling people. Begin your adventure today. Connect with us at mercyships.org.
1: It's an adventure of a lifetime.
0: Well, it has become very normal these days. If you fall in love, get a boyfriend, get a girlfriend, you move in together. That's just the way you're supposed to do it, right? Two-thirds of couples in America today do that, and seems to be a fantastic way of life, according to a lot of people who talk about it. Goldie Hawn, for one, as I was mentioning a little bit earlier. But the data is very interesting when you start dissecting it on marriage versus living together. And my guest is Dr. Frank Montcher, who has a great article on this over at the Culture of Life Foundation, cultureoflife.org called Living Together Versus Marriage, A Closer Look at the Data. So, Dr. Muncher, when we were talking about the issues that uh, f- that have contributed to the fact that more people are living together rather than marrying, um, you point to the divorce generation and this millennial generation in particular that is very nervous about divorce. How do you see that playing a part in this whole issue?
1: Well, one of the
2: consistent findings in the psychological and the sociological literature is that divorce really does have a profound impact on children and that um, there was a time when people were trying to normalize divorce and uh, emphasize some of the things about kind of as, well, as long as the parents still get along you know, and work together. Um, divorce doesn't have to be that bad for children. And of course, there's some truth to that. If, if the divorce is amiable and parents cooperate, they can certainly abate some of the negative features. But the one thing that I would say can't be negated is uh, the children's experience that the two people who came together to make them and pledged lifelong commitment have decided not to follow through with that. And I think it really wounds the child's sense of who can I trust? If I can't trust my parents who said they were going to be together to be together, how can I trust this boyfriend or girlfriend who's in many ways a stranger to me? Uh How can I pledge my wife to them over the long haul. And so I think it really is quite difficult for children of divorce to take that step.
0: Oh, for sure. And so you'll see statistics, for example, where you have a lot of millennials saying, I'd eventually love to get married. I would really like to get married, but I'm so terrified of failing that I'd rather just live with somebody or live with a series of somebody's, because at least then if we break up, I haven't failed at a marriage. But on the ground, what is the real difference there? Because there have to be bad effects. If you go uh, along a course of serial monogamy, that takes a toll on you as well, doesn't it?
2: It does, it does, and particularly in in the way in which people are presumptively giving themselves to each other physically. And then what we know from the biochemical research of late is that there's a strong impact biochemically, particularly on women, of the attachment, the bonding that happens to them with any sexual partner. Right. So they're getting attached and then having to unattach after they go through the one living together, then another, and then another. And again, it's going to wear away at their ability to really know what it means to attach and to bond to someone. When they eventually do perhaps get married, um, there's going to be some consequences for that as well, I fear, in terms of their ability to really trust and, and to stay.
0: Right. Well, and this is something else that you commented about regarding this study that's come out, that this disparity was larger for men than for women on the issue of living together and feeling safe and feeling like you're really committed. I mean, that makes total sense, though. Again, the common sense idea that, of course, men would find that a, a, a better arrangement in many ways than a woman would.
2: Right. Yeah, and there's, um, there's that finding itself, I think, is important because there, the, one of the main arguments I hear, for example, in marriage preparation classes and things of this nature is that people feel like, well, we're living together because we want to make sure that this is the right person for me, so I want to have the experience of sharing space, sharing resources to make sure that we can do that. Mm -hmm. Um, And then, again, what happens without the formal commitment is they're really playing house in in the most um, minimal sense of the phrase, Mm -hmm. and they're not really having the experience because you can always walk away from a living together arrangement much more easily than you can uh, a marriage. And so people don't have their their real foot, um, real face put on in those relationships. They're either trying to be better than they really are or different than they really are to impress the other person, or they're kind of hedging their bets and have one foot out the door. Wow. Um, but either way, you're not getting a genuine experience with the other person.
0: Do you happen to know any data that's out there regarding whether or not living together makes you less likely to stay in a marriage? I've heard statistics along those lines, but I'm not exactly sure what the data says.
2: Right, yeah, the data there, you have to look at it carefully. I think it's um, really in kind of two phases. In the, the early phases of a marriage, of transitioning from a living together situation, the risk of divorce is much higher. That people who live together for, you know, six months, two years, five years, then decide to get married, within those first few years of marriage, the divorce rate is much higher there does seem to be a point at which they um, rebuild the trust or get to a point where it begins to be a little bit more like what we'd call the normal divorce rate.
0: Right. That, that was the seven-year mark you were referencing right, earlier. Right. Yeah, yeah. Well, and that's the problem. I, I, and I wonder if there has been any substantive research on whether or not some of this data about the benefits of marriage is impacting people on the ground. I mean, you read things about marriage being so much better for you and better for alleviating levels of depression and all the rest. Are people listening to this data, do you think?
2: I don't know. That's why I appreciate shows like yours where we can get the word out, because I, I think oftentimes people are going to read the headlines from this uh, study that I was reviewing, this most recent article, and they're going to say, oh, living together marriage aren't any different. Well, it's a lot easier just to live together, and so why don't we just do that? And I I fear that people oftentimes are not reading deeply into the issues, and and that's really the purpose of the Culture of Life Foundation is to try to get in very quick hits um, some of the word out so that people can make better decisions about where their life is headed. Which
0: is important. Well, the study that you've been talking about in your article here, you, you mentioned other data that they explore in this project. And I find this really fascinating that this project confirmed, you say, that other traditional values or goods, like giving birth to a child or attaining a full-time job or achieving higher educational levels, those all significantly decrease emotional distress in a relationship. So doesn't it all kind of go hand in hand? Wouldn't they also, if they were being honest, have to say marriage really is a better way to go?
2: Right. And, And yeah, and I really thought that was an important thing to include in my summary because I think it kind of got lost in the larger article. Um, but, yeah, people are afraid to have children anymore. Yeah. You know, people um, don't see the point of working if they can somehow or other get their lives funded. And, you know, the good that comes from, you know, the two things those would have in common is this idea of giving of self. Right. You know, when you have a child, you're, you're forced to get outside of yourself and focus on someone else. When you're working full time, you've got to do something productive for others. It's not just all about yourself. Right. And I think, you know, living together, part of it is people are a little bit too focused on what's in it for me and not, not enough focused on what's in it for another.
0: Absolutely. That's the disease of the day. It's all about me. It's all about my happiness. You know, right. when you talk about the depression rates, this is something I'm circling back to because I think this is interesting. What do you take away from the data on depression being alleviated by marriage? And why do you think that that is significant?
2: Well I think you know there's um again it's not going to be all that different than the point you were just making about the all about me. Well, one of the things that we know that's again I think counterintuitive because some of the propaganda that you see kind of out of Hollywood or in the media more broadly is that somehow I'm going to be happiest and most fulfilled if I'm doing what I want the way I want and getting what I want. Yeah. And what's true psychologically emotionally is that people are happiest when they're in relationship with another person, giving to that person, making self sacrifices, yeah. you know, so it's it's an opposite counterintuitive message to what is out there more broadly, and it's one that really needs to be focused in on because I think culturally speaking, the more in individual selfish people we have walking around the more depressed people we're going to have walking
0: around. Yes, that's a great point. Well, and going back to something else you said a few minutes ago when people say, well, I want to live together because I want to see if we fit, if we're a good fit, and maybe see how he conducts himself rolling up the toothpaste tube and all the rest. Well, that shouldn't be a reason to reject somebody. I mean, that's pretty selfish in and of itself. If you don't behave the way I think you should behave in a domestic setting, then maybe we're not meant for each other. I mean, that's a really shallow reason, Uh, not that people are citing toothpaste rolling, as being the reason they would break up a relationship but it, it really says something doesn't it trying somebody else on that's just a bizarre concept
2: right no and, it, and it, yeah the whatever the reason may be I think you're you're in on the exact point that um, when you're in a relationship and you're trying it out in that way you really are um, I think having the expectation for what married life will be to be quite unrealistic and part of the joy and and the growth that occurs for both parties is figuring out how to work it out together yes
0: exactly right well i think the article is terrific we're going to post it at janetmefford.com so you can read it but you can also check out cultureoflife.org dr frank moncher's living together versus marriage a closer look at the data great piece and so great to have you here dr moncher keep up the good work it was wonderful to have you
2: Thank you, Janet. It was great to be here.
0: Thank you so much. Well, thank you, too, for listening today. We're glad you're able to tune in. As again, we've mentioned, the website is Janetmeffer.com We'll see you there. This hour of Janet Meffer today is brought to you by Affirm Film's Show Me the Father, the creators of War Room and Courageous. The Kendrick Brothers explore fatherhood through five true stories. Show Me the Father, rated PG, parental guidance suggested in theaters September 10th.